Good morning. Man, wasn't that Olympic thing so great, that theme? They did a lot of work on that. That was super fun. I love it. I love our people. I love how, 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 how much we try to put into sharing good news and getting people engaged. I really appreciate about that. You could tell that my bags here uh, from the 1800s are packed, <laughs> and they're ready for Tokyo. I don't know. Anybody going to Tokyo this summer? Wow, you guys don't care about the Olympics at all, so... Just kidding. I know. It's not, it's not easy to travel right now. I know. I know. Have you ever wanted to spend time with your family and you were busy and it's been a tough season and you thought, oh, we need to get away. We need to go on vacation. We need to get out of all this stuff and all these distractions and we just need the bond. And you get this bright idea. We're going on a vacation. We're going on a trip. And man, you get excited. You get ready for this trip, and you're like, okay, we are gonna, we're going to take advantage of this. You, you find a cool place to go to, and, and you schedule all these activities. I mean, you have an agenda, a schedule down to the five-minute slot. You know what you're going to do. You get so pumped and excited, and with all the best intentions in the world, you start that trip, and it's not what you thought. What happens? You leave late. You're not on time. You've miss some things. There's things that you were hoping to do you can't do. You know, the kids are like, oh, let's do that. No, we've got this agenda. We're going to have fun. You're going to love it. And this is what we're going to do. And by the end of the vacation, there was fighting and arguing. And, and how did you miss the main point? I mean, the whole idea was to be alone together and to bond and have fun. But yet you didn't. And it wasn't what you thought. In Christianity, we can do this with God. We can do this with Him. We can have all the best intentions in the world and we could schedule and plan and we think, okay, we're going to do, do it this way, we're going to do it that way because this has worked before, this has been something good before and you plan it, but yet you miss what God intended in the first place. You actually miss the priority. You miss the primary reason why we gather together at all what God wanted to begin with. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Our passage this morning is on the heels of the story that we read a couple weeks ago. We were reading about how Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's house. And I'll, I'll start there because we're continuing on the narrative. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, and that then they said to him next, that doesn't mean it was in this very moment, but Luke is connecting these stories then they said to him, you know, John's disciples fast often and say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours, yours eat and drink. So their attack on him eating and drinking with sinners didn't work. They were so upset that he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. But, you know, Jesus did his ninja move. He always is evading them and overpowering them, using their words against them. And this is what they figured. If they couldn't pin him down on who he ate and drank with, then they would criticize how he ate and drank. And to them, he, they shouldn't have been doing it at all. He said, 
they, they said they don't fast like we fast. Now, what is fasting? What is a fast? A fast is a practice where you don't eat and drink. That's it. You don't eat or drink. That's what fasting, fasting has been around for thousands of years. It became a religious practice, a spiritual practice. The idea is when I don't eat, uh, you know, you become hungry. Like for me, let's say, uh, let's say if I don't eat for about, I don't know, 35 minutes, my stomach starts growling. It's ready for the next meal and it's hungry. Well, spiritually, your spiritual belly doesn't have that same thing going on. You don't always sense that spiritually you need something. And so you have a fast. You take that, that physical hunger and you connect it to your spiritual reality. For the Jews, fasting was important. Fasting was an important part of their heritage. To them, normally fasting was done in mourning, not like the new day mourning like the beginning of the day, but mourning like grief. You're mourning and you're fasting and what you're wanting is for God to come help you or maybe you've sinned and you want God to forgive you. And so fasting was significant for them. Every, every year, the whole nation, the whole Jewish people would fast on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They would all fast together as a nation, everybody. And then they would fast again. There was a four-day memorial, uh, kind of not a service, but a four-day memorial period where they would fast for the fall of Jerusalem. Back in 586 B.C., the Jerusalem fell. That's when the Babylonians came over and took them captive. If you read in Jeremiah, Isaiah prophesies about it. Jeremiah was there. Lamentations, you get, you get that idea. They prophesied about the fall of Jerusalem. Well, that really happened. And so after that time, the Jews would fast together for the fall of Jerusalem. It was biblical to them. Fasting was important and significant. And so if you look in, East, in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, you read about a three-day fast. 1 Samuel 31, verse 13, records a week-long fast where food was forbidden during the day. Some fast you could eat at night, you just couldn't eat during the day. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 through 3, you see that three-week fast. If you've ever heard of the 21-day fast they get from Daniel, that's Daniel chapter 10. And so fasting was a sacred part of their religious heritage. Fasting was often seen as a virtue. If you fasted, that was like your religious one-upmanship where it's like, hey, I fast, you know. You know fasting was, so it was even meritorious. And in Jesus' day, the zealous fasted twice a week. The Pharisees, the religious leaders that were like, we really committed to God, we're super spiritual, they would fast on Monday and Thursday. And they would do this every single week. And people would see them and go, whoa, look at them. And they would look despondent and hungry. And oh, yeah, oh, that's a real Monday. Look at Mr. Mr. Great. He's fasting. And that's the idea. And so they were upset. They're like, Jesus, how come you're not spiritual like us? How come you don't do the religious good things that we do? I mean, who, this Jesus guy isn't as good as us religious leaders. I mean, look at him. He doesn't even fast like we do. So what was the big deal? Why, why wasn't Jesus fasting like them? Why didn't he do that? Well, we know Jesus wasn't against fasting. In the beginning of his ministry, how long did Jesus fast? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He would teach his disciples to follow him, to go off alone and pray. He would skip a meal. You remember that time where he's like, I got food you don't know about? And they're like, did someone order McDonald's for him? I mean, what is he doing? And they didn't know like, where he got food. Jesus did fast, and he also taught his disciples to fast. He just didn't do it according to their religious Jewish customs. He didn't follow their religious practices. He didn't fit into their religious structure. 
And so they were upset, and they just started grasping at straws. They wanted to accuse him of something. They, they were finding fault. They wanted to find something about him to criticize because he wasn't like them. Jesus was not like the Jewish leaders of the day, and that made them upset. Hey, you're not doing church our way. You're not looking like us. You're not dressing like us. You're not fasting like us, and that's even in the Bible. What's up with Jesus? And they were upset with him. I don't know, they, they even went as far as pretending they were on the same side as John the Baptist. You see, John's disciples fast. Listen, they were not friends with John the Baptist. They did not like John the Baptist. John the Baptist had hard words to, the, to say to the Pharisees, but have you ever heard the phrase, an enemy to my enemy is my friend? So you see the way this is being set up. They're trying to find fault with Jesus about something, and they're choosing his religious uh, traditions that he's not following. And here's, here's how it translates to us. We know this is true. When people outside of the faith are confronted with Jesus, they will either humble themselves or defend themselves. They will either look for forgiveness or they will look for fault. They will either adore him or they will attack him because Jesus didn't fit the mold. He didn't follow anybody's custom. He was Jewish. He was a Jewish man. But here's what you're going to find out through the story. Jesus did not come to convert people to Judaism. He didn't want people to become Jewish. And that bothered them because they were Jewish and they, they, that was their message. That was their gospel was you need to, come, you need to become Jewish. And so they looked, for a, they, looked for, they looked for fault. You know, the Puritans have this saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And the Pharisees were like clay that was hardened. They were hardened against Jesus. They rebelled and they, were, they rebelled against him. So Jesus uses three parables, three illustrations to explain why he's not following their traditional customs, their religious customs, the way that they do church. He explains to them, this is why I'm not matching your way of doing things, why I don't fit into your religious structure, why I don't match your box of expectations. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? And the implied answer is no. It's not assumed in Greek, in this language, you can actually write a sentence, a question, so that you know the answer is no. And that's what, how Jesus phrases it. You, you don't fast while the groom is with you, and then the answer is no, of course not. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So a wedding is meant to be joyful and relational. Remember, fasting is usually accompanied by mourning and a desperation for God to show up. But guess who's there? Jesus is. That's what they're missing. Jesus is present. The problem is they didn't appreciate who Jesus was. Jesus is saying here that he's the groom. Now, this is really interesting because if you read the Old Testament and you're Jewish, you know that there is an illustration like this. In the Old Testament, the prophets say that God is like the groom and Israel is the bride. That's found in your Bible, in the Scriptures. That's what God has said. That's what he said to his prophets. But now we have Jesus here saying, I'm the groom, and these who follow me and put their faith in me are the bride. This is new. This is upsetting to them. Paul echoes this idea, though, in his letter to the Ephesians. 
In Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Christ being the husband, the church being the bride. He is the savior of the body. When John spoke of believers in heaven, he gives this same illustration in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come. The lamb is Jesus. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. We are the bride. Those who put their faith in him are the bride. And so what does this mean for you and me? When Jesus says that he's the groom, what is he trying to say to us? What this means is Jesus is saying that he wants to be your one and only, not your one of many. When Jesus says, I'm the groom, he wants to be your one and only, not your one of many. Just as a groom doesn't want to be your favorite husband among many lovers, Jesus wants to be your only husband. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. He redeemed us through his blood. He wants us to belong to him and him alone, not to religious structures that we think are him. He wants us to belong to him and him only. So God is a jealous God. He doesn't want to be, Jesus doesn't want to be at the top of your list where you're like, oh, well, Jesus is better than this. He wants to be your entire list. He wants to be the only thing. He wants you to forsake everything else, give up all else and say, God, you and you alone is what I will follow. You and you alone is what I'm giving my life to. Everything else can change except you. Jesus wants to be your one and only. And so he gives two parables, two parables to drive this home, this whole idea that he's the groom, he's the only one. He also told them a parable, verse 36, No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. So I don't sew, okay? I don't know what this meant until I studied it. If you have a new piece of cloth, it's a cloth that hasn't been through wear and tear, you could say. And the way that cloth is structured is when... When cloth is being sewn and woven, it stretches out. You stretch it out, whatever fabric, whether it's cloth, which is more like this. It's a long chain uh, with hydrogens connecting it all together. Or if you have wool, wool has like scales on it. Think of it like plates. And when it gets a certain way, if it gets wet and it gets hot, then it changes. Cloth is the same way. So back in their day, when they would have a garment, when they would have a garment on, like a fisherman, it would get wet and then it would get hot in the sun. It would get wet and then it would get hot. It, a leather tanner, uh, anybody, anybody that worked in there, they would sweat, their clothes would get wet, and then it would dry. When they would wash them, they would hang them up, they would dry in the hot sun. Does anybody know what happens to any kind of, even most synthetic material? What happens to clothes when they get wet and then they get hot? They shrink. And so he's saying something that they all would understand. You don't put a new garment that hasn't been through this process and the fisherman hasn't worn it and hasn't been gotten wet and then dried again and all that. You you wouldn't put that to patch up an old one because that new one's going to shrink. It's going to tear the old. The whole is going to become worse than the first. By the way, when Jesus, toward his last days uh, or toward the crucifixion, when they were casting lots for his garment, the reason why they didn't want to tear it is because it was one piece. One piece of cloth without holes in it, without patchwork, was really important to them because it was useful, it was durable, and they could use it for a long time. And so Jesus is giving them an illustration they can understand. And he also says, uh, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. This makes me think of my home and my wife. She's so great. She, She paints. One time we painted this wall, 
and uh, she painted the wall, and she brings me to the wall, and she says, oh, I just feel like, do you see, do you see the streaks in the wall? And you, and you husbands understand what this position is like when, you know, if I say no, I'm lying. If I say yes, then, you know, what's going to happen? And so, of course, you guys say that you're like, well, I, maybe I see a little, I'm repainting the whole wall. Because it didn't match. The colors didn't match exactly. And to paint it, you have to paint the whole new wall. Well, a patch is not going to match the same color as the rest of the garment. It's going to look bad. It's going to look ragtag. That's the whole point. So it won't match the old. And then he said, in verse 37, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. So wine was made for them in a wine press. You could have homemade wine presses that were smaller than this. You could have a wine press like a, uh, they'd put this big stone roller thing and they'd roll it around with the donkey. Or most of them were like this. If you go to Israel today, it looks like shallow bathhouses. There would be a treading floor. That's the big one. Those two figures on there like men. They would stomp on the grapes. They would kick out the juice. It would be elevated a little bit to where it'd go down that little channel. Then it would go into vats. They had different vats because if you brought in different grapes, you don't want to mix the flavors and the age and all that kind of idea. You want it to be, uh, you want it to be unique. And so they would plug it up with a rock. They still do this today in a way. It's not this exact same way. We've advanced a little bit. And they would take that wine, that grape juice from one of those vats, and they would pour it into jars, like clay jars. But if you wanted to take that jar, that jar, that clay jar to the next town, you try putting a clay jar on a donkey with it walking like this, and it's spilling all over the place, and then it falls over. Clay jars are fragile. So if you wanted to transport that wine, you had to figure something else out. And they didn't have plastic bottles like we have today, so they had to use wineskins. So here a picture, there's a guy on the left, he's carrying wineskins. If you look at, at his feet, those bags, they kind of look like animals without arms, without legs, and without a head, because that's exactly what it was. That was an animal skin, and they would sew it up because skin is watertight. Just like you, you have water inside you and you're not just leaking everywhere. Skin is watertight and it's useful. And so they would use goat skins more often. The picture on the right, there's 11 different, that's from the 1800s, 11 different skins they would use for carrying bread and other things. But liquid was the most important because skin was the most, they didn't have plastic. They didn't have glass. They didn't have those things. And so they would use airtight, liquid tight skins and that's how they used it. So they'd put it into wine skins uh, to transfer it. They'd make it from clean animal hides, often goat skins. So when you take those, when you put wine into one of those skins, what they would do is they would tan it, they would skin it, uh, they'd skin it first and then tan it, and then they'd shave it. They'd no, no hair, nothing like that. And then they would sew it up and they'd pour the wine in there, where wine has a particular process that it goes through. When you put wine into a container and you close it up, there is, uh, there's yeast on grape skins. I don't know if you know this. There's a natural yeast in the grapes. And you know when they're treading floor, they're squishing in, a little bit of that yeast gets mixed in with the juice. Well, new wine doesn't taste much like yeast, even though it has it in it. What happens is the yeast interacts with the, the sugar in the juice, the natural sugar, that fructose, and it turns it into alcohol and carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide is a gas and it balloons up. So it's like, imagine the wine grows in the skin. Well, if the skin is new, it's elastic. It has some elasticity, kind of like my skin has proven to be. It will grow, and it will grow with you. It will balloon up. But eventually, that elasticity wears out. And some of you at a certain age, you understand what this is like. Your skin doesn't really stretch like it used to. It's just stretchy, period. And so you, you know what that's like. It just sags because that's what happens to animal skin. 
And so they would put it in those, those are two animal skins, smaller animals, and they would put it, they would hang it on the top of their tent post. They still do this at some Bedouin desert dwellers in Israel even. They still use this same process. They use their animal skins, their goat skins, this same exact thing. This is how they do it. And so Jesus is saying, you don't put new wine into an old one because an old one is bitter, uh, uh, brittle and it's rigid. It's already been stretched. It has no more elasticity. It will bust open. It will spill. Even the new wine will be wasted. Everything will be wasted, the old and the new. You can't mix the two. Just like you wouldn't put an aluminum pop can in the freezer, if you've ever done that, what happens after an hour? It explodes, right? It busts. You think, oh, I'll just get this in 20 minutes. I want a fresh cold drink. And you forget, like everyone else, and it blows up, and then you have to clean that mess. But that's the same idea. And so what's Jesus' point? I know you guys aren't interested in science. What's Jesus' point? What does this have to do with Jesus and his disciples not following their religious practices? Here's the idea. You can't mix faith in Jesus with strict religious practices. What Jesus came to offer does not fit into a religious custom, not even Judaism, which would blow their mind. It's still, if you read the New Testament, how many times do you read about Jew and Gentile and about the law and about how things are changed and the new covenant and what that means? It was such a big deal to them. They, the, the Pharisees did the same thing with Jesus uh, in Mark chapter 7. I want to read that to you just to drive it home. Mark 7 verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, him being Jesus. So the religious leaders are there. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands, right? Any moms in here just, ooh, you know, how you don't eat with, un you wash your hands before you eat. Well, they had these customs. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. We call it 30 seconds. Ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've washed their hands. They follow grandma's rule. They wash their hands. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, even their couches. I mean, there's like a lot of rules around these things. And they all stem from the Bible. They actually come from the Old Testament. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked them, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Why don't you teach them to follow our religious customs? Instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands, your way's not better, is what they're telling Jesus. You're doing worse. These things are better. They're more accustomed to the Old Testament tradition. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. Now let that sink in. You hold so close to the tradition that you miss the, command, the true command of God. You can't attach religious styles to following Jesus because the invitation is to follow Jesus, not follow tradition. When Jesus came, he came to invite people to him, not to Judaism. He didn't want the Gentiles to become Jewish. That's what the message of the Jews was, and he came to bring a new message, a new invitation, and you cannot attach that to Jesus. A faith in Jesus cannot be stifled by some kind of custom, religious practice, tradition. And by traditions, I'm not, listen, I don't like when people bash the, 
bash the church. I don't like that. I don't like talking about the church is the bride of Christ. I'm not against traditions. I have traditions. You have traditions. Traditions in themselves are not bad. Traditions are neither good nor bad. But the value of a tradition lies within how we treat it. It can either become a value or a distraction if we elevate the tradition too highly as if it's a requirement. If we say Jesus plus this, if we say if you put your faith in Jesus uh, and you'll also dress like me. I want to give you an example of what Jesus was saying. I used this old suitcase I got from one of our church members. When I opened it the first time, I smelled grandma's house. It was so wonderful. This thing has got to be 100 years old. Anyway, in this wonderful old bag, I have a hymnal. Hymnals are full of great songs. I know I've memorized a lot of songs in the hymn, in the hymn book. They're so great. Uh, here we have a King James Version Bible. King James Version. This, is, this translation's been around for over 400 years. Such a great translation. It's been used. It's wonderful. It's very word for word. They, they, they did such a great job on this. Here's a tie. This is one of my ties. It's actually more new looking. I really like this tie. It goes well with my black stuff. And then I have this, uh, I have my suit jacket. Uh, I don't know if you've, ever worn a suit? Some of you, God bless you because you haven't. Uh, I have to wear a suit every now and then, but this is a suit jacket. Here's what Jesus was trying to teach them against. This, there's nothing wrong with the suit jacket. Nothing. But if I tell you, if you really want to worship Jesus, if you really want to follow Jesus, you got to wear this, that's when this is wrong. That's when this is not what Jesus was saying. When you say you got to wear a tie, because, you know, that's what Jesus would want, which he's clearly taught, no, that's not what he's asking. And this is one of the places which he makes it abundantly clear. I have not come to follow in their traditions. You cannot give people Jesus plus your culture. It doesn't work. They destroy each other. They conflict. I've not come to call people to become Jewish. If you were to have any culture, it would be the Jewish culture. If you read the Bible, that would be the one you'd go to. Nothing wrong with the King James Version, but there's some people that say this is the only good translation, and it's not. I've actually translated part of the Bible in the New Testament from Greek into English, and I can tell you everyone I've ever talked to that is so convinced that this is the only one has never translated the Bible. They don't even know what they're talking about. They believed, they put their faith in someone else's comment, someone else's something, but they're wrong. This is a great translation. It's not the only one. Hymns are so wonderful and beautiful, and I love them, and I memorize them. I sing them myself. But these aren't the only songs. These aren't the only ones we need to celebrate together. We need to sing new songs also. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let the new songs come. There's nothing wrong with them. And so Jesus was speaking against mixing Jesus, faith in him, with a tradition. Now, for some of you, and I think I broke this bag. Uh, for some of you, I, uh, I have a different bag here. This is my... This is actually my bag. Uh, this is a newer one. Just imagine it's new. Um, this is a newer one. It's more modern. I like this bag. We use this. It's actually Courtney's bag, uh, but my bag looked ghetto. So um, we, uh, in this bag, I have, a I have a few things. I have these. My brother works for Google. He gave me these Google glasses. Like, aren't these trendy? Like, don't I look cool in these? Just pretend. Pretend I look cool. <laughs> anyway, these are trendy, right? You want to, you know, if you want to be trendy, um, oh, look at drumstick. Look, drums. Anybody want to play? You know, I, I'm a big drummer wannabe. I love in our worship set, 
when our drummers are drumming. I, I actually will look at the drummer sometimes, and my way of worship is less singing and more like I just, I just imagine myself in heaven with like a hundred-piece drum set, and everybody's singing, and I'm like singing too, but I'm able to play the drums and worship Jesus. I love it. Um, these are my jeans. These are skinny jeans. They don't look like it because I've worn them once, um, but they do say the word skinny on them. I know for me, uh, all, all my jeans are skinny jeans. Uh, but that's not really the point of this illustration. Um, so, what, what's, what's, the, what's the point of showing you this? In, to God, you know, what, what Jesus was saying is, you, you can't give people Jesus and then also give them your luggage, like your stuff, and say, if you really want Jesus, then you have to follow this way. And I actually had a person in our church. We have so many good people in our church. It's unbelievable. I love our church family. They, uh, they made this for me. I said, I, I just, I need a cross. I need a cross that's too big, that, that's too big for this luggage. The, the problem that Jesus was trying to tell them is, you cannot fit the cross and faith in Jesus in your tradition, in your style, in your way of dress. If you don't sing like me, worship like me, dress like me, act like me, talk like me, if, if you're not like me, then you don't fit. God was wanting to change their perspective, not their preference. God was trying to teach them. I'm, I'm not, he wasn't trying to convert the Jews out of Judaism, but he also wasn't trying to convert the Gentiles into Judaism. He came to bring a new message, and it didn't include our traditions and custom. What happens is you have the cross over here, and when you try to give people this, what are you giving them? Your baggage. When, when you say, when, when Jesus asks you to tell, when he taught his disciples, give people me, he wasn't saying, give them this. You dress like this, you act like this, you come in here, you sing like us. That's not what Jesus wanted us to give them. If we do that, we're just giving them our baggage. Jesus plus faith equals salvation, but Jesus plus tradition equals baggage. And that's not what Jesus wanted them to bring. And that's why he's giving them these parables. That's why he's telling them, don't do that. Give them faith in Christ. That's Paul had to argue against this over and over again. They, it's like the people would keep going back to Judaism because they'd read the Bible and they would forget what Jesus was trying to teach and what he came to do. The cross doesn't fit in our luggage. It won't fit. And so Jesus didn't want the Jews to stop being Jews. He didn't want the Gentiles to become Jewish. He didn't come to change their culture. He came to change their message. He came to bring a new covenant, a new way of being made right with God, and it didn't matter how you dressed. It didn't matter the foods you ate. None of that was the point. God wanted to do something new. You can't force your styles and traditions on people. You have to give them Christ. We're not to that verse yet, but that was the point. Our, when our gospel message becomes more about our styles and traditions and not about Jesus, we've missed the point. And it's dangerous because, according to Jesus, no one after, and that word after is really important, no one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. Maybe your translation says the old is good or the old is good enough. People that drink it, what, what proverb was Jesus trying to communicate with them? He's giving them a wise proverb. He's telling them, listen, the danger with traditions that you give as requirements, the danger with them is they're artificial. 
Traditions that are esteemed too highly are dangerous because they have the potential to remove a hunger and thirst for Jesus. Because you think you have what you already need. If people dress a certain way and they come in here and pretend like they're good enough and they dress like you and they act everything's fine, I, I mean, we probably don't deal with that in Newton, Kansas, where we pretend like we're fine and we don't really talk about our sins and, and as long as we look a certain way, maybe we don't deal with that, but the world deals with that. I think we deal with that. Even in this church, we can deal with this. What are we offering the people around us? Are we trying to give them our baggage? Or are we trying to give them Christ? Artificial righteousness is a substitute for genuine relationship. When you say, but you got to be a certain way, you're giving them something that will push them away from Christ. Why did Jesus tell the Pharisees, uh, Paul wrote about this to the Jews, so many people are pushed away from the, from the road, from the right path, are pushed away from God because of you. Paul writes about this in Romans because you give these traditions to them and you push them away from the real thing. They need a faith in Christ. They, they don't need a religion. They don't need traditions. Not that traditions in themselves are bad, but you cannot attach them to Jesus. My hope is that in our church, it will look more like this to where this suitcase and this suitcase can stand here worshiping God together. And that we would be here together welcoming one another as the Lord has welcomed us. That we would not say, and you also have to fit into my culture if you want to be right with God. There are a lot of churches in Newton. There's, there's a lot of churches in Newton. Some of them, one of them at least, is super trendy, super cool. There's others that are more traditional. What I want to know is, what, would God, what does God think about our church? Our church is changing right now. Have you noticed that there's different people in our church? Not everybody's the same. They don't all come from the same background. They don't all have the same testimony. They don't dress the same. They talk differently. They look differently. You know what I care about? What does Jesus think about that? What, what does Jesus want? When I read in the book of Revelation about heaven, what do you see in heaven? Do you see everybody segregated or do you just see a multitude of people of every tribe and tongue and nation standing next together worshiping God together? You don't have to give people your tradition and your customs and your culture to give them Jesus. And you don't want to judge them and try to fit them into your mold. You're just fitting them into your clothes. They don't need to wear your stuff. Give them Christ. Our sending is not come to us, it's go to them. It's not become like us, it's put your faith in Christ. So ask yourself, what are you giving the world? Are you offering them the gospel untainted by other expectations and man-made laws. I want to end with the reading of a scripture that Paul wrote referring of this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I, might, so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings." In a way, the Pharisees were like the old wineskins that were rigid 
and cracking and not able to take Jesus in. And what Jesus came to bring was not a tradition. I want to pray, and during my prayer, I want to invite you. I know some of you in here, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you realize you've, you, maybe you've given yourself to a religious system, uh, some kind of custom, but you know that you have not given your life to Jesus. You don't hate your sin and you don't love him. You're just fitting in. There's something that has been passed on to you and taught to you, but it hasn't been Jesus. I want to invite you to receive Jesus right now, to give your life to him. The Bible says if you confess your sins, admit, I have broken God's law. I'm, I've been separated from him. I have not been perfect. I have not done it right. If you confess that and say, God, please forgive me of my sin, and you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he came to live a perfect life, that he died on the cross, and on the th- he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. If you believe that ridiculous message, that crazy message, that unbelievable message, if you believe that, the Bible says you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. So I want to pray. I want to pray for our church and um, pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your teaching to the Pharisees and the disciples and to us. We do not want to miss what you have come to bring. We want to share in the good news we want to share in the gospel of what you came to bring. We pray, would you, we pray, would you help us be a people that offer the cross and faith in Jesus to others? I pray that you would make this church into a beautiful image and reflection of heaven and what you did with the disciples, with the Jew and Gentile being together as one person. Would you help us to love you with all of our heart and to share you with others? Help us lead other people to you and not to our way of living. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.